welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is a longtime friend. He is one of the true leaders in every manifestation of what leader means of our industry. I'm talking about the great Bill Koningsberg, chairman, founder, and CEO of Horizon Media. Great to do this with you, Bill. Thanks, Matt. It's great to see you. Nice to see you healthy and with that wonderful smile. And I appreciate you talking to me. Yeah, no, we're, uh, we're fighting the good fight here. So, Bill, I, I want to start not with the head or the wallet, the business side of our business, where I know Horizon continues to defy the odds and perform extraordinarily well, but I want to start with the heart. And when I think of you, Bill, I think about your commitment to putting people first. And about a year or so ago, you and I had a conversation about what you were doing to keep the Global Horizon family connected. And that really made an impression on me. A lot more time has passed. That job has not gotten any easier. Talk about that passion to put your people first, where it comes from, and how you have continued to navigate that to keep all your people sane, focused, healthy, and productive? Mm. That's a big question, Matt. <laughs> so you're, you're starting off with a really deep one. We're getting right, one, we're throwing right, listen, you can swim. You're going right into the deep end of the I, pool, my friend. I, I'll tell you, but one that I'm incredibly passionate about. So, you know, you, in that question that you asked me, you said, like, where did, where did that initiate from? Where did it come from? And I, you know, I think about that a lot. And, you know, one, I, I was very fortunate, in my opinion, because I grew up in a town called Long Beach on Long Island, which was a town of incredibly diverse people from all walks of life. It's a very blue collar town, but all walks of life. And, and I had no problem whatsoever getting along with everybody. And it was a rainbow community. And that taught me pretty much that people are all the same. And I, I, I kind of had this, this inner feeling of everybody being equal and people are the same, even though we all came from different walks of life in terms of how we connected and how we got along. I think secondarily, I played a lot of sports growing up. And sports was about teamwork and personal connection. And if you connected in that world, magic could happen with a team. And I think you, you know that. So I always was very focused on people and, and teamwork and collaboration and connection. And when I decided to launch Horizon back, I hate to say it, 32 years ago, when the world was focused on greed you know, in, you know, Gordon Gecko times and, and money and, and getting ahead and Wall Street was as vicious back then as it, as it is today, except, you know, today they cloak themselves in, in goodness with giving away a lot of money, but it's still very vicious. You know, I decided that I was going to build a company based on culture. No one was focused on that. I wanted to build this family. I was that kind of person. I wanted to build a team. I wanted to build a family. And I decided to go out with this mantra, business is personal, where if you joined me, 
you were going to be part of my journey. You were going to have a say. You were going to build a culture that would be like coming home to your to your family. And that was unheard of back then in the early eight, uh, sorry, late 80s. That was pretty much unheard of. That wasn't what the world was about. And that culture of people first, of bringing on people who are diverse, but but like-minded who, who want to build something unique and want to be part of the process, not watch the process is kind of where the roots started from. And if you, and what that meant was I would have a vested interest in you. It meant that, that I would care deeply about you as a person. It meant that I would care about your career. Um, no politics. That wasn't, that wasn't allowed. And, and that business's personal philosophy of how we treated our people and how I personally treated people is, is how the company started. And when you think about it now, 32 years later, and every company is focused on culture and inclusion and belonging, and a lot of these companies started thinking about that just a few years ago, we had a 32-year head start because it was our DNA from the beginning. It wasn't part of our DNA. It wasn't a piece of our, it was our DNA from the beginning. And culture drives productivity and profit. And I'm a huge believer in that. So that people first mentality, that culture of caring, inclusion, belonging, being part of the journey, having a voice, knowing that your voice can be heard was the cornerstone of how I built horizon. And then a year ago, you know, as the company has grown from, you know, 20 people to close to 3000 people back when we first went out, a, you know, a year and a half ago, March when COVID hit. And I honestly did not know if our company was going to survive. Nobody knew whether their companies were going to, you didn't know if your company was going to survive. We didn't know that. I had a really big decision to make in terms of, you know, when, when half my business went away in, in April, do I start to lay people off left and right and cut people's salaries? Or do I put people before profit, save everybody's jobs? And if we come out of this, I'll come out of it stronger. I'll take a huge hit, but I'll come out of it stronger. And that was my mantra, people before profit in, in, in March of last year. And that provided an enormous sense of security and relief and comfort uh, for our people who were living in a world of a lot of unknowns, but they knew they had their jobs with me. And that was a big risk. I didn't know. And I was running modeling every day as to how long I could carry everybody. Could we last six months? Could we last a year if this stayed like this? So one, we became a very strong company internally because everybody knew we were thinking about each other. And then the second piece of that was when the outside world was going through an economic meltdown, a pandemic like we've never seen before, illness and death all around us. You then had the, the, the social injustice uh, situations that were cropping up left and right. You had the political climate. The world outside was turned upside down. I had to find a way to provide comfort and hope and inspiration internally. So I decided to do a bill daily. And every single day, starting that March 14th date that we went home, I wrote a bill daily every evening at 5.30. 5.30, it was coming out. 
talked about what was going on at the company, what was going on outside the company, celebrated positivity across the organization, and then ended each night with an evening thought of inspiration. And I did that for a year and a half, up until about two months ago when I've now gone to a Bill Monday. <laughs> I did it every single day. And the feedback that I received, everybody knew 5.30, my employees, a lot of my employees' parents were writing me emails about my Bill, my bill Dailies. And that kept us so connected as an organization. And I didn't realize how powerful it was going to be. And then the second piece, back to that, so that business is personal. The second piece is, you probably know this, for 30 years, I send an anniversary letter to each employee on their anniversary day. So I have 3,000 employees. I'm sending out 20, 250 a, a, a month, these letters. And I couldn't do that during COVID. So to this day, since that March, I have an anniversary call every day, every day. Could be 20 employees on the call, could be 15, could be 17, could be 30, who are celebrating their anniversary. Get on a call for 20 minutes. I talk to them, ask questions thank them. That personal touch is kind of what's built a lot of currency inside the company. So that's kind of how I've handled it, what I've done about it. And it's something that we're known for and something I'm very, very, very proud of. And as the company has gotten larger and larger and larger, as you know, it's hard to keep that personal touch, but I keep trying. No, and, and you have, and you were literally in this instance, Bill, decades ahead of the game in understanding the importance of culture. Let's stay in Long Beach for a minute before we move on. Uh, I share a similar background to you. I grew up on the North Shore uh, in Queens and I'm very proud of where I come from and a similar notion of diversity. And you know, I remember when I was in elementary school at PS 46 in Bayside, Queens, you know, if there were kids who didn't have money for lunch, you know, we used to walk home for lunch. Yeah. And, uh, and I would bring kids home with me and my mom would always feed them. And that was just how I was raised. Uh, and I still draw upon that experience today. You also have the spirit of an entrepreneur deeply baked into you. Talk about the early Bill Koningsberg. Did you work as a kid? Did your parents instill that in you? Where did that entrepreneurial spirit come from? Yeah, so that's really interesting. Number one, you know, being an entrepreneur is being very competitive. So one, my competitiveness came from my sports playing and I excelled highly in, in tennis, as you know, and played the juniors and you know, moved on and played down in Miami. But my competitiveness came from, from tennis. And entrepreneurialism is, is you got to have this competitiveness to, be, to begin with. So that's, that's one. But, but my parents, my mom, um, pretty much raised the family. We had, you know, four siblings, you know, family of four kids. She pretty much raised the family. But my dad, you know, worked every day, you know, took that, that, that 637 train in the morning into the city and, you know, took that 655 train home every night and he put in a full day's work. And, you know, I think he instilled in me a little bit of work ethic and what, and what that was about. He was in the home heating oil business. So he instilled in me 
you know, work ethic. Um, for some reason, I was always interested in advertising. I was a TV junkie growing up. You were probably a TV junkie growing Absolutely. up as well. Yep. Uh, those were the good old days of some incredible TV content. There's still great TV content, but those were the good old days. Um, and I was a TV junkie, but I was always interested in advertising. So I knew early on in my life, high school, I wanted to go into advertising. By the way, my father told me never to do that. He said, you're never going to succeed there. It's a very insecure business. You lose an account, you lose your job. Don't go into advertising. That's what he, that's what he told me. But um, my first four-way, foray actually into advertising, because I was a tennis player, I taught tennis on the side. And I worked in these tennis courts in Atlantic Beach. I was about 14 or 15 years old. And my first foray into advertising, there was a restaurant um, right next door. And I gave the restaurant signage on the tennis courts in return for my getting free lunch every day. So I, I was, that was my first foray. I gave them advertising. I got paid in, in, in lunches every day. And I was very proud of that. And then um, uh, when I went to school, I went down to Miami and I majored in marketing. I was in the business school. I took a lot of marketing classes and I was very interested. And then when I realized that my future was not a pro tennis player for a whole bunch of different reasons, came up to New York and I said, I'm going to get a job with one of the best advertising agencies in the world. You know, the J. Walter Thompson's or the BBDNOs or the Ogilvy and Mathers or the Wells Richard. None of them would hire me. I couldn't, couldn't get a job with any of them. Early on, I got a job at one of the very early media-only agencies as they were starting to you know, crop up and, and take market share away from the fully bundled agencies. And uh, that's how I got my first foray into media. I actually wanted creative or account management, but I didn't have a creative portfolio. I didn't have an MBA and got a job at a media agency. And uh, uh, very fortunate, I worked for a company called ELA. They're no longer around. They're one of the very early media-only agencies, and they were growing tremendously. And I picked up a lot of responsibility at a very early age. And then I um, uh, was with them for about seven years, and um, I got an offer from a publicly held company to come and open up a little media division for them, which I did. And as you know, I eventually ended up being able to buy that little entity from them and I spun it out and that's how I formed Horizon Media. They lent me money to do it. And that's how I started the company. But my my entrepreneurialism, I think, followed me from very early days, from from that signage trade on the on the tennis courts to my competitiveness on on the field, whether that was playing baseball or or or, or playing tennis, um, to being competitive at work and wanting to wanting to do well. And then for some reason, I felt I wanted to be in control of my own destiny. I didn't want to, you know, when, when that company, Media General, wanted me to try to sell this little division to one of the big agencies, I said, ah, why do I want to do that? Let, let me, let me take it over. I'm competitive. I could, I could do this. And I was, you know, the ripe old age of 29 and, and I convinced them to let me take this thing over took about a year or two to get the deal done and I took it over and that's how I formed Horizon and and I've been competitive in a really good way ever since but that's that's kind of where the roots it's kind of where the roots came from the great story the lunch story is a fantastic story so let's go back now to 1989 
And the very beginning, you shared a little bit of what we can call the origin story of Horizon Media. But take us back to the very beginning, that first day. Where was the office? How many people were there? I think you said around 20-ish, but I imagine on day one, it was even less than that. Yeah. So first of all, rewind a little bit. When, when I left that first media agency, uh, ELA, I actually left it, not whether I ever shared this story with you, Matt, but I left it because I picked up a lot of responsibility and I was promised a company car. You, have you heard this story? No, no, let's hear it. So I was promised a company car and I was like ecstatic. I was 27, didn't ever have a car, was telling everybody I had it. I went out and picked it out. It was at one of the early BMWs and I had all the paperwork and, and Weeks went by and I was getting the president to sign the papers of the car because all the senior executives had one. And now I was getting one. He, he actually came to me a few weeks later. He said, Bill, I can't get you the car. The board won't approve it. I said, what are you talking about? The board won't approve it. You promised me this car. Here it is. Here's a picture of it. Here's the leather. Smell it. Can't do it. And I was really upset because I felt that he reneged on, on something. I was working my towel off and, and, Literally the next day, I got a I got a call from the headhunter to come and run this small little media agency, and I was so upset about them reneging that I that I ended up moving, and obviously taking the new job. And I asked, "Do I get a car with the new job?" They said yes. So that was that was great. I'll come back to that story in a second. So I ended up convincing them to to, to spin out this entity and sell it to me, and. Um, Unfortunately, if you recall, back in 1991, we hit a recession. So I, I, I bought this company. The world goes into a recession. All the money I borrowed to run the company I actually needed to pay off uh, media obligations because we had a bunch of clients that went belly up. At that time, I was handling you know, fourth and fifth tier clients and went belly up so I couldn't get paid. I had to pay off the media. Otherwise, they wouldn't let me on the air. And it was a disaster. It was horrendous. So when you say, what were those early days like? I had just entered into my entrepreneurial dream of starting a new company. And within the first year or two, I was in serious financial trouble because of the recession. And I didn't have any money. And I didn't know whether we were going to survive. But you've heard the term, Matt, ignorance is bliss, right? I was not anywhere near as astute financially back then as I am now. And I didn't realize how bad a shape we were in. We were in terrible financial shape. Anybody else with any financial intelligence would have said, that's it, we're done. But I didn't know because I was ignorant about that back then. And I just figured out how to keep it going. You know, pay this guy, don't pay that guy, tell this guy, I'll pay you eventually. And and so that was a great learning lesson of sometimes what you don't know is a, is a good thing. You need to know how bad it could be to appreciate how good it could be. And it's still a humbling learning lesson for me of, of, of never thinking that, that, you know, I've arrived because it could change in a second. And I still feel, I still have this fear of failure. But so those early days, starting out the company was very exciting and then we hit this, this terrible speed bump of a recession, and I was panicked. I had owed all this money also because I borrowed all this money that I couldn't pay back. 
They were threatening to close me down because the company wasn't doing well. And I, I remember a meeting about two years in where they wanted me here to literally cut the company in half. They didn't have a lot of people, but they wanted me to cut the company in half from a, from a cash flow perspective. And I, I had a meeting with them. And I said, listen, if you want me to cut the company in half, here are the keys. You take them because we're going to go out of business. And you might as well take it now, take it over, do what you need to do. But, but I can't do that because that is a sure recipe that we're going to die. I gave them the keys. Five minutes later, you know, they had a little conference. They handed me the keys back. And I said, Bill, we'll give you another year. We're going to extend the loan for another year. We'll give you another year. Uh, you better be right. And uh, I left panicked. <laughs> and eventually, we started to come out of the recession, picked up some additional clients, and slowly the company started to grow. And for those first 10 years, I was a student. I was a student of all my competitors. What were they doing right? What were they doing wrong? What did I like? How were they leading? How do I steal pages from their playbook? So that's what I did the first 10. The next 10, I was starting to write my own playbook. And we started to pick up not fifth and sixth tier clients, but second and third tier clients. As you know, I think for the last 10, we've been writing the book. All right, wait, yeah. wait, 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 we missed something though, because you, so you don't get the car. Correct. You Leave. get an offer elsewhere. Was it, yep. was that media general? Media general. Correct. Okay. Sorry. They give you a car. Correct. Clearly the car is critical in this whole equation. Yep. Uh, ironic that, you know, we're talking about a, a, a 10 billion plus company now, right. and Over we're talking a about a, a $300 car lease. Uh, and, um, they media general backs you correct to launch horizon that's correct okay okay got so we, we got it all pieced together now i'll get back to the car story for a minute i don't know if you know the name ave butensky i do not okay so ave was the president that reneged on the car and as new you've seen my offices down in tribeca five hundred thousand square feet they're just unbelievable it's quite Beautiful. sad we're not Beautiful. in there right yeah. now so Ave calls me about five years ago and he said, Bill, he's the guy's in his like 80s now, maybe 90s. He says, I'm in New York. I got some TV producer who wants to meet you. I haven't seen you, Bill, in 20 years. I hear you're doing well. Can I bring him up? I said, sure. Comes up to my office and he's looking at the place and I'm taking him around and he goes, Bill, this is, this is crazy. Look at the size of this place. I said, I knew that, that, you built a great company, but I never imagined it was like this. I said, yeah, Abe, and it's all because of you. He goes, what do you mean? It's all? I said, yeah, Abe, this is all because of you. He said, well, I know I was a mentor to you, but I, I, I kind of didn't teach. I said, no, Abe, it has nothing to do with you being a mentor. If you never reneged on the car, I never would have left the company. So thank you so much for reneging on the car because that gave me the opportunity to eventually buy this. And so- Another lesson learned there, and you know this, sometimes you think something awful happens to you, but you don't realize that if that didn't happen, this other really good thing would never have happened. So don't think in the moment if something bad happens, because a few years from now, that bad thing could have turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to you.
It's another lesson I teach people. Yeah, no, one door closes, another opens. <laughs> Absolutely. So the first 10 years or so of Horizon, you're building. Do you sure. remember some of those early successes and some of the ones that got away? Uh, so, you know, one of the very early successes, which is probably the proudest of my career, was we picked up a little client in 1993 called Geico. Small little insurance company spending $500,000 with me. Uh, starting to heavily roll out in the direct-to-consumer insurance business. And as you know, 30 years later, they're the second largest insurance company here in the U.S., budget in the billions, and have been a client of mine now for 27 years. So that was a cornerstone moment. Never knew that that was going to become what it became. But I treated them back then the same way I treat them now. Even when they were a small little $500,000 client, I treated them as if they were a new client every single day for 27 years. And that's how you keep, you keep business. I think the, 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 the second cornerstone in that 10-year period was we started to attract better and better talent from the holding companies because they understood word of my culture was spreading, word of us being entrepreneurs and and, an, and a, a company of belonging was spreading. And we were starting to attract better and better talent. And as you know, talent also drives everything in our business. So that was, that was an interesting phenomena about the kind of people who wanted to come and join, join the company. Um, but that first 10 years was, I'll call it R&D, research and development, um, picking up smaller pieces of business, figuring out my differentiation between me and the, the holding companies. In the early days, it was about client service. We were known for impeccable client service. We still are. But in those early days, my philosophy was, if you never lost a client and made them feel like a new client every day and you picked up incremental business, you're going to grow. So don't let anything get out the back door. Smother your clients with inspiration, making them feel like new clients every day, surprising and delighting, always exceeding expectations. And that formula of being so focused on client retention and then picking up new business helped the company grow tremendously. That's still our formula today. We have incredible client retention and we're stronger than we've ever been on, on, on the new business front. So again, early, early, early philosophies, Matt, that are still with me today. You know, those, those things that were the foundation of the company. Fantastic. And you are way, way ahead of the industry in terms of loyalty and retention, uh, which is a testimony to everything that you're going through. But let's go back again. I want to hear about something that didn't go well, Bill something that one that got away, something where you learned something early on that I know you, you have a long memory and there has to be something that didn't go right that you learned from that helped you, I'm guessing to this very day. I think, you know, believe it or not, Matt, and, and I get asked that question a, 
a lot, like where'd you screw up? And we've had 30 years of year over year growth of the company. It's crazy. 30 years, every year, 208, 209, when the world fell apart, we grew, we were hiring when the new normal was down 30 or 40. The pandemic last year where I thought we were going to be out of business, we actually grew year over year. Um, so we've weathered those, and that talks to me about the resiliency of the company. But when I, when I think about um, some of the areas where um, I made some mistakes, I, I, I think, you know, listen, we're, we're a $9.5 billion company today. I probably could have been more acquisitive in terms of acquisitions of companies through the years. And I chose to build versus buy. So, you know, we have a sports marketing company. We have a content studio. We, we, we've got a multicultural agency. We've got uh, um, a whole bunch of other ancillary businesses where I built as opposed to buy. And I hate to say that, that it took me a long time to get to where we got to, but I probably could have grown the company faster and bigger had I taken more risk from an acquisition perspective early on. So one, I never took advantage of that. And uh, I kind of wonder where I could be today. Listen, we're, number, we're the number one agency in the US in terms of size right now. Um, so that's one. The second is I've stumbled globally. We do not have a, a global, strong global capability. I've got a, a network that's in 70 countries around the world, works well in certain markets. I think we're terrific. I don't own it. It's an affiliate relationship. And I'm not anywhere near as strong globally as I feel I need to be. And, and that's a bit of a Achilles heel for me. We're fine, obviously, in the U.S., and there's a lot of still growth potential in the U.S., but globally has been a, 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 an Achilles heel for me. I think so those I would say those those two areas. And I, I probably should have bought some companies around the world globally back years ago. So I missed I missed that boat because there's not a lot to buy anymore. Uh, the, the acquisition pieces here in the U.S., I probably should have gone in the content game a little bit sooner. Uh, we really doubled down on content about three years ago with our studio, and it's it's doing incredibly well. I probably should have gone in the content game sooner. Um, but I'll tell you, a lot of times it, it it pays to be patient. We We held off on our own programmatic trading desk until we could build a fully transparent solution. And as you know, Back years ago, the holding companies got themselves in trouble with the K2 report from a transparency perspective. And we leapfrogged them in building out the first fully transparent trading desk here in the US. And we've been transparent since day one when I started the company, but I wasn't going to launch a trading desk until I was 100% sure we could be fully transparent. So that's something we, we launched later, very proud of. And now our identity framework platform, Blue, which competes with Merkle and competes with Epsilon and competes with Axiom that you know uh, IPG has, we have built out what I think is the most robust, insight-driven, transparent consumer data platform that's out there. And again, I think we've leapfrogged the competition from a data and technology 
perspective, and I'll go up against anybody. And we've got some big wins this past year based on that platform. So sometimes it helps to be to be patient. But, you know, I also think that um, there is now this arms race for a different kind of talent in our industry. Product developers, engineers, data scientists, data solutions people. And we are now not only competing in our own pond, we're competing with the platforms, we're competing with, competing with clients direct, and we're competing you know, within our own industry. And when the holding companies terminated a ton of people last year, and a lot of people left the industry, and now you know, data is the world we're all living in, there is a, a, a talent struggle out there, which, which we hope to win because of that culture platform that I started the company on 30 some odd years ago. It's a great story. And I think the story of organic growth is a tremendous story. And you cannot argue, as they say, the proof is in the pudding, year over year growth for 30 plus years. There's your answer right there. So... When you start, Bill, we go back to Media General, the early days of Horizon, uh, all the way just about through the recession, 2008, 2009, the role of technology in our business vastly different than what's evolved over the last 10 years or so. Uh, I was doing a little digging for something today and we go back, Facebook started February of 2004. YouTube was February of 2005 and YouTube was March of 2006, and somewhere in 2006 was the iPhone. All of those things collaboratively, along with some other technologies, really dominate the conversation today. And I noted Barbara uh, was kind enough to send me your, your most recent bio. And uh, I noticed very high up now, uh, you see the words data-driven. That was not the case in the Bill Koningsberg bio probably five years ago, let alone 15 or 20 years ago. Talk about navigating how technology has dictated change, how you have figured out a way to get out ahead of it and be able to lead within the industry amongst your peers, uh, large and small, and to help lead your clients as they try to navigate all this technologically driven change and evolution. Yeah, so, so I'll try to simplify a complex subject. Not because, Matt, you can't handle complex topics. I know you can. I, I appreciate you uh, speaking to the audience here. But I, but I am going to try to simplify it. Let me go back to business as personal in my own internal mantra. Well, there's not one marketer out there today that doesn't want to build a personal relationship with their potential consumer and existing customers. And we know that consumers who have a personal relationship with a brand, create brand loyalty, create lifetime value, and have a connection to whatever that brand might be. So marketers are trying harder than ever before to connect with their various audience segments. And we're doing that through the sophisticated use of data. I have the ability now to understand so many things about you, Matt, what you do, websites you visit, what you purchase, what you don't purchase, 
where you live, how many kids you have, do you have grandchildren, how often do you shop, what are your favorite colors, what are your favorite passions, what do you do, and I also can follow you on a device graph and understanding the media that you're consuming and how you're consuming it. So we are using all of those signals on the front end to identify segments of audiences, what their passions are, how to reach them. And then more importantly, once I do, understanding what action they're taking or not taking, which will then enable me to serve other messages to them to bring them down lower into the funnel to make a purchase or to get you to consider a product. So the technology that we are using today, one our identity framework platform that I talked to you about, which has 283 million individual IDs in it, is the cornerstone of what we're using from an architecture perspective to understand everything about the consumers we are trying to reach on behalf of our clients. So you use that to size up audiences, understand all the nuances about them. You then can activate either programmatically or, or also through other programmatic pipes in just about every form of media against them. We have tools to measure. Are you viewing it? Are you taking an action? Are we, are we closing a deal? Are we driving you someplace? And then you optimize against what is working. And that's the, the full circle right now of what we call the, the media consumption journey that deals with the consumer journey to then hopefully make a purchase. And that's how we're navigating it today. A great story. Yeah. And you could argue that some of the most creative work that's being done in our industry is being driven by media. What's your take on that? Uh, I, 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 I think that um, from an insights perspective, without a doubt, we are, we are gaining so many more nuanced, creative insights that help us do a better job in terms of engaging and building that relationship. But you can't do that without the right messaging to the right segment. So the messaging piece, Matt, is today as, as important, you know, I, I would say it's as equally as important as it's ever been. You can't have one without the other. You can, and that's why we built out our content studio. Uh, you know, we're, you know, there are companies out there today, you know, that are doing 50, 60, 70, 80 different pieces of content a week, little iterations, you know, to reach various segments. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. So you talked about growth and acquisition and organic growth. Uh, was there a moment, Bill, where you thought about selling the company? Surely you must have been approached by some of the holding companies or perhaps one of the consultancies. You have this fierce streak of independence in you. And I notice all your words are purposeful that, you know, you are the largest player not a, that's not part of that holding company ecosystem. And I think that's a badge of pride and honor for you. Was there ever a moment where you thought about selling? Yeah. So, so you know what, Matt, 
I'm always trying to think about what's best for my employees and what's best for my clients. That that's one. And yeah, I've I've thought about it many many different times along the my own my own journey here. And the stars never aligned the right way for me for me to do something. Um, you know, from a holding company perspective, certainly they could they could help me globally. You know, because they've got they got these big global networks, so they can help me globally. I'm not quite sure from a culture perspective and a, a client perspective and my own employee perspective, that would be the pe- the best place for 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 me to 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 move the agency to in its next life. You know, I'm so one absolutely. I get approached and and but I don't have a for sale sign out from that perspective. You know, for me. I'm always trying to figure out where the puck is going and, and how do I set the company up for the, for the future? You know, finding a really good strategic partner, no doubt about it could make a lot of sense for me in the, in the future. Uh, Not necessarily a holding company, but a strong strategic who brings some additional thinking perspective to the table. If I was going to get more acquisitive, that would be, you know, I don't have a big corporate development group. That would be something interesting for me. Uh, so I would never, ever say never. You know, I'm, 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 I'm not, have not found the fountain of youth yet that I'm, I'm aging backwards. I'm aging forwards. This isn't a company I feel I could turn over to my family. It's too big. Uh, so I think about succession and I think about what's the right next move for where the world is going. And I'm constantly evaluating who's out there and uh, how do I take advantage over the next several years of what I think is tremendous opportunity in the marketplace? Yeah, no, I, I listen, I think it's never been a more exciting time uh, to be in our industry. You're a guy, Bill, who's, you know, always thinking, always looking ahead, never satisfied with the current state. What's on your plate looking at 22, 23, 24? Are you looking to tackle global growth? Are you looking to go deeper into the content ecosystem and some of the other areas that you've developed organically and entrepreneurially through Horizons Veins the last few years? What's on your hit list? Yeah. So Matt, I actually have a very in-depth five swim lane game plan for the next several years. Um, Don't necessarily want to share that because I don't want to tip my competitors off in terms of where the puck, where I think the puck is going. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I'll tell you, we need to go deeper into data and technology, which we plan to. I think there's an enormous opportunity for us to go much, much deeper into content creation and where we're going to go there. I have my eye on a whole bunch of incremental verticals that I feel we can either acquire or build. And I want to tell you what those verticals are, but a whole bunch of other verticals uh, as I've built, you know, multicultural and as I've built sports marketing and as we've, we've built the content studio and as we've built this entity called big, there are five or six other verticals, which I feel I can provide uh, to my clients, all with the filter of driving business outcomes for them. So all client benefit driven. Every single one of these are client benefit driven. And then I think that um, there is an opportunity 
for me to 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 create and launch or acquire uh, some non-traditional types of agencies out there. And I think that that um, all four of those swim lanes provide opportunity for growth. I think the second piece is we have a project internally right now called Project Accelerate. Project Accelerate is all about AI and machine learning driven across the entire organization. And how do we drive a lot more uh, effectiveness across the organization in, in a world of steeped in, in data and technology to make us more efficient as a company uh, so I don't have to continually add more bodies that are doing manual work. So Project Accelerate is, is heavily, heavily under, underway right now internally. I also believe it's something that eventually we actually could offer clients. If I am successful in terms of what we're doing here, there's a good opportunity, I think, to work with clients in their marketing groups to drive more effectiveness and efficiency through, through automation and machine learning. I have no problem exporting that information out once we conquer it ourselves. That's another big project. And I guess the, the last one is our continued quest uh, to elevate a lot more senior level diverse talent uh, within my organization, certainly, and, and within the industry. And, and what can I do? You know, I have a whole, whole litmus of things I want to do from an industry perspective. Um, but I think that um, uh, the industry's made some progress, but we obviously, you know, we've all talked about this. There's a lot more progress to be made, and we're pretty focused heavily on that as well. Great. And, and Bill, just to wrap, one of the things I've observed about Horizon is your ability to continue to attract and nurture talent. And you keep your people, they stay with you. Similarly to your Geico story with you 27 some odd years, that talent arms race, and you touched on it earlier, you have a lot more competition now. You're competing with Silicon Valley. Uh, the elevator is much more crowded now. Talk about Horizon's talent strategy and how do you go about from the bottom up attracting more diverse talent? Are you looking at HBCUs? Yeah. Are, you, are you doing different things? Because yeah. that so, stuff doesn't happen by itself. Yeah, so first of all, we, I think, now have 14 full-time recruiters. That's number one. Um, but we also believe talent is every single individual, recruitment is every single individual job, people's job across the, across the organization. Um, you know, I expect my senior leadership to reach out to people we make offers at the entry level. I expect them to reach out and, and make sure that they're connecting and touching with those individuals. The issue for us on a diverse side is not entry level talent into the company. In the last three, four months, 50% of our entry level people have come from a diverse background, 50%. So I'm incredibly encouraged as they move up, the numbers as you get up the pyramid will become bigger and bigger in terms of percentage of diverse talent at more senior level positions. The challenge has been at the top of the pyramid and a couple of rungs below the top of the pyramid because this industry had done such a lousy job years ago in nurturing you know, that talent. 
So the future looks bright because if I know who we're bringing in now, but I'm impatient. I don't want to have to wait five, six, seven, eight years. So how do you maybe source talent actually from other industries? And I'm a big believer if you bring smart people in, they'll learn in a year what they need to learn to be able to do their jobs. And it's a lot of extra effort on our part to lean in and teach that. But we're now trying to fish in different kinds of ponds to, to bring in other kinds of diverse talent who we can teach that we think are really smart and kind of build our own from, from, from that perspective. So it's a combination of things. And yeah, we're out at the schools and we're, you know, we're, we're, you know, on social media, we're out trying to reach for, you know, lots of different uh, uh, constituencies of talent out there. We're probably going to launch a recruitment campaign that I think is going to be very unique and very different that will share a little bit about what we're about. And, you know, our best advocates are our current advocates. Yeah. Those are our best advocates. Fantastic. Well, if I'm going to Vegas at Caesars and I got to bet on somebody in our industry, Bill, I'm putting a big, big pile of chips on Bill Koningsberg. And it's a joy to have become a friend of yours uh, and to have uh, had the chance to spend a lot of time with you and your team. And I uh, have tremendous admiration for what you do. And our industry is better because you're in it. All right. Well, Matt, thank, thank you. And, and now I'm going to ask for a little reciprocal uh, agreement here. Sure. So I, I, I do a knowledge cafe at the company every quarter, and it's bringing in interesting people to talk about their life and their journey. And, and I, I, you know, could be a celebrity, could be someone in our industry, could be just a person of interest that I think is really cool and has something to say. So I would like to invite you to one of my upcoming knowledge cafes where I can turn the tables Interesting. and ask you the questions about your journey and your life and your perspective on things, your perspective of the industry, because you have a really good one, what you've learned from all of your ventures and advertising week. So I, I'm, I'm going to turn the tables on you, Matt, and I want you to think about it, but I'd love to have you as my guest. I, I, I look forward to it. And uh, um be a flattered and honored. So cool. uh, Bill, thanks so much for doing this. Loved having you. Stay healthy. Mm-hmm.